We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Barcelona Podcast, episode 113, Unmissable Opinions, brought to you by the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community. I'm Dan Hilton, joined by my guest for the day. It's a guy that you've heard from before, and we'd love to have him on again, and it is Mike Miller. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, as you could tell with the loss to Real Batis, it was a 4-3 loss. Obviously, if you listen to this, you know that. I feel, Mike, that we've had a lot of negativity, and for this show, LaRonda, it's been a few weeks since we had these listener questions from tbpod.link backslash group from that closed Facebook group. So I think it's time that we answer those questions again. And Mike, you're in the group, so you were prepped. You know these questions. And again, if you have this podcast in your ears right now, you're one of those people that do not, unlike what we saw with un- unveiling the curtain a little bit, unlike what we saw last year with the Roma, there has been a little bit of negativity after this loss to Real Batiste. But if you have this podcast in your ears, that means you're one of those people that are going to be steadfast and and going to continue to care about your team regardless of the results. And again, this is the time of the season. It's November. It's time to fix some of these problems and figure these things out. And now we got a comment in the Facebook group. And this comment, there was a lot in it and it's a lot to unpack. So I can't really do the comment justice, but I'll, I'll just give you some of the highlights to it. But I do want to tell people if you join our closed Facebook group, and I want to remind people as well, you answer those three questions. It asks you to ask answer three questions. And the reason we do that is so that we know that you actually are someone who's going to be paying attention and someone who actually wants to be in the podcast and got there from the group and didn't just find it through some other third party means on Facebook. So again, this is just to make sure that you're actually serious about being in the group and we don't get spammed. So to answer those three questions, if you were denied, go back in, reapply answer those questions, and I'll let you in no problem. So again, to see this full message, head into the group. But nevertheless, the commenter urged us not to gloss over the frustration that Kool-Aid are feeling about the 4-3 loss to Real Batiste because, as he said, Batiste are playing more like Barcelona than the Barcelona that we know. And it seems like that's been the narrative throughout all media, Mike, that Real Batiste are, are feeling more like Barcelona uh, than the Barcelona themselves. And that's, that's making people a little uncomfortable. Yeah, it's a, it's a comment that we've been hearing not only this season, but last season as well. And uh, Kike Setien, for uh, those among your listeners who uh, are not very familiar with him, is um, a manager that favors offensive-minded football and, you know, transition through passes and uh, really creative uh, attacking-type style football and 
it's something that we haven't really seen as much of as we would have wanted to from Ernesto Valverde since he took over. And that is why uh, I'm thinking uh, purists and romantics alike uh, are quite fond of Kike Setien, myself included. However, I think that it's a stretch to say that Real Betis looks more like Barca than Barca itself. But I can understand where people are coming from. I think that the analogy to be made here is what would happen if Kike Setien managed Barcelona? Because he's doing so well with what he's got to work with uh, at Real Betis. If he was given FC Barcelona's quality, what type of football would be would we be able to see? Yeah, that's certainly the, the question I think we're about to try to answer too. And I, I want to just go back to answering a few of points. And I'm going to do what I always do, Mike, and say that I agree with parts of it, but not others. I think firstly, in November, with Barcelona losing to a quality side by one goal and then still topping the table at this international break, that's something that still doesn't make me panic. I think in a vacuum, again, leading the table, even if, and, and just again, on, on paper, you look at the game itself and in a vacuum, the game also looks dangerous. And I think I've been staying, I've been steadfast in saying all year long that we as Kool-Aid do a disservice to the rest of La Liga in thinking that we're deserving of three points every week because we don't value the quality of the opponent. And now I do think, however, that with the talent in the squad and the money spent on players, that Barcelona should have the depth and should expect a positive result in a positive way. And while it sounds like it's, I'm just going about semantics and all, it's all really about framing, but I think there is a really important line between disrespecting other La Liga squads that have a ton of quality and expecting that with all the resources at their disposal that Barcelona should be a favorite to win every trophy every year, which is what they should be doing. So mm-hmm. we'll get into priorities of the season later on, but I do want to address this. Getting to the root of why a 4-3 result in November has everyone so frustrated, it's a match, as I said, that wouldn't matter all that much if you saw just the box score. If you just look at it and the way that Real Batiste potentially could be playing, yet yes, they were buried as the 14th play side in the table at the moment, but looking at their potential, and you mentioned and the fire that Kike Setien seems to have, have, have lit in them over these last two seasons where they really have, have built something there, it wouldn't look like that bad of a result to fall 4-3 where you Rakitic gets a red card. Messi's just coming back from injury, which, again, we'll get to in a little bit. But it doesn't look so bad. But yet, Real Batiste exposed Barcelona's weaknesses. They played with confidence. They passed out of the back, even when Barcelona were pressing. And while it didn't always work in the in the beginning of the game when Barcelona had, had brought their greatest amount of pressure— more, more often than not, it did work, that passing out of the back, that confidence they had on the ball. Their midfield played quickly, and their passes were crisp and intelligent, and they didn't just rely on athletes and physical skill. Barcelona can win the Liga and Champions League this season with the players they have. I'm not worried about that at all. But they won't win a thing playing the way they played against Batiste in the springtime. I, I think while other clubs' fans can say that Barcelona fans are overreacting and Kool-Aid are overreacting, the point also serves that a team in Batista that hadn't won at the Camp Nou since Luis Aragonés beat the Blagrana in 1998, you see those kind of things and you, you wonder why and how did that happen. I, I think Barcelona being the first team to qualify for the knockouts of the Champions League, still topping the Liga table, Barcelona fans are spoiled. That is true. But I think the reason this match feels like an overreaction is because, as we mentioned, this Barcelona didn't look like the Barcelona that most of us know. And for those who, again, have jumped on, even since basically post 1992 this is a t- this is a team that if you're if you're listening to this and you listen and you were a fan of the team prior to 1992 then you probably have something different to say but for any fans on the of the last 26 years since the time of 
and, and as Cory even was building that, so go back to the late 80s, that we basically mm-hmm. have 30 years of Barcelona succeeding and playing a certain way. And I think the re- overreaction that other fans might see from Kool-Aids is because the Kool-Aids are feeling that Barcelona just don't look like Barcelona. And once Barcelona lose, or at least the fans feel like they've lost that identity, you know, then there is no pride in the team. And I think that's the big problem here, Mike. It's not the result in a vacuum of 4-3. It's all the other things that we saw on the field and all those worrying signs that kind of make Kool-Aids believe that Barcelona aren't the team that they began rooting for whenever they jumped on in the last 30 years. You're making a great point. It's I, I don't think that Kules are frustrated about the result as much as they're frustrated frustrated about the manner in which that game was played. And when we look at the game, Real Betis seemed in control. They seemed focused. They seemed to have had a game plan, a clear game plan that they were following to, to a tee. Uh, and a lot of credit has to be given to Kike Setien, of course, but I think that the players also deserved a lot of credit uh, for the way they played. I'm thinking about a Christian Teo, for example, who was uh, very decisive in the in the last 30, uh, 30 meters, as opposed to a Barcelona team who, more often than not this season, has been relying on individual performances rather than collective effort and uh, a clear uh, tactical scheme uh, that has been um, that, that that has been used from one game to another rather than simply reacting to what the other team is doing which what seems to be the case with uh, Mr. Ernesto Valverde yeah we got a question we're going to stick on the realities instead of going you know big picture here we got a, mm-hmm. a question from a gentleman named Mike Miller I think you've probably met him before <laughs> um, he, he asked a question about Kike Setien, as did Richard. And, Mike, your question was, is Kike Setien the best manager in Spain right now? And you also, I guess you could do it yourself and mention what uh, Sergio Busquets' nice gesture was. Uh, but the other question from Richard, too, everyone's talking about their love of Setien, but what are his downsides as a coach? And so you look back in, at his history, and something that it is just a stat, it, it doesn't serve anybody any good to, to harp on what is a stat in the coaching circles, which is points per match, because again, every team, every situation is very different. But Setien, in 58 matches at Real Betis, 26, 12, and 20, averaging 1.55 points per match. Before that, he was at Las Palmas, 78 matches from October of 2015 to June of 2017. And the truth there was that he did have a very positive influence at the club. They finished 11th in 2015-16, his first season there, and 14th in 2016-17. They averaged about 1.23 points per match, which for Las Palmas and the resources he had is was enough, should we say, to, to keep them up and to have them playing pretty well. And if you remember, the very reason that Sergi Samper was moving out on loan to Las Palmas was because Kike Setien had created this atmosphere and the way that they played on the field that should have been suitable for a coule raised in La Masia like Sergi Samper. And before that, Lugo was where he made his living, 2009 to 2015, 136 matches, 44, 40, and 52, 1.26 points per match. Again, Lugo not in the top flight, this being in the second flight. And there were three lower stops even before that, including a stay with the national team, Equatorial Guinea, which doesn't really play in the African Cup of Nations or anything. They really just do World Cup qualifying and the big picture stuff before they're knocked out. His first job, however, was at his longtime club, Racing Santander, October of 2001 to June of 2002, 
18, 10, and 8 in 36 matches, where he had his career best 1.78 points per match, but didn't really bring Racing Santander too far up. And that was a time when they at the club was dealing with a lot of different financial issues. And a lot of the clubs like Racing Santander at that time during Spain and what would continue through the global crisis. Again, Racing Santander, what's happening to them currently, a real shame. But anyway, that's a different different thing for a different day. But anyway, for me, Kike Setien, it's not that he's even made this slow rise because he is 60 years old. It's not like he's an up-and-coming coach. He's established. You know exactly what you're going to get from him. And that, we're at the point where for Barcelona, as much as you want to romanticize you know, the Barca B coach in 2008 that was called up to manage the first team, and you want to go back to the well in terms of People love talking about Xavi being a future coach someday, and you want to go back to the well in terms of guys who've been around the club. It seems to me, in truth, not only to the board, but the way that result-driven hires are made at Barcelona now, that that's what makes Kike Setien just so so valuable in the eyes of Kules because they they believe, and they he's shown now at multiple stops that this is the way that Kike, that Kike Setien plays. If he comes to your club, this is how he's going to expect the players to play. And that's why there are all these positive things being said about him. The one downside I would find, and, and you can elaborate on this, Mike, is that I've watched him throughout the season because as Sid Lowe says on you know the Spanish football podcast that Real Batiste last year, other than Barcelona and Real Madrid, they're the team to watch. They're the one that people tune into. It's continued into this year. And other than the last two games against Celta de Vigo and Barcelona, scoring is what Real Batiste wasn't doing. They were playing defense pretty well. Mark Bartra, of course, being fantastic for them this season. But they weren't really scoring. And then the last two games, they have been fantastic to watch. It's been fun to watch. They've been scoring in a high clip. But if you haven't if you haven't watched them before these two last matches, that hasn't been what they've been doing this season. Yes, you're you're exactly right, Dan. But on the other hand, they they've improved their defense tremendously, which was a very big concern for them last season. And I think that this improvement on their uh, on their back line has come at the expense of uh, of uh, of their offense and that is why uh, at the beginning of the current season we've seen a, a decline in the amount of goals scored but it's a long season we have 26 round left to be played and after seeing the steady um, progression that they've been having this season I'm confident that they're going to turn it up again and they're going to be able to come back to, to what it was last season. Well, the other thing that Real Batista does, they also play a 3-5-2. So the question you'd come, if Kike Setien were hired and, you know, you knock Valverde out and Kike Setien is in, what system is he going to expect Barcelona to play? I mean, when Valverde instituted that 4-4-2, all Kules got their pitchforks and said, no, Barcelona play a 4-3-3. So Kike Setien, is he going to, is he a manager that's going to come in and say, we play my system, which at the moment is a 3-5-2 at Batiste, or is he going to say, this is the players that we have and this is the way they expect to play, so we're going to do a 4-3-3? Actually, I have seen Kike Setien also use a 3-4-3 this season, which is uh, also reminiscent of uh, Pep Guardiola. Uh, Pep Guardiola's 3-4-3 when uh, he was using Xavi, Busquets, Iniesta, and Fabregas uh, as his uh, four-man midfield. So, sure, three, four, uh, pardon, 4-3-3 is not exactly his forte from what he's uh, shown so far in his uh, very, very uh, rich career so far. But I'm very confident that 
should he come to Barcelona, even if it would be for only two seasons, if he were to to establish a three four three, Kules and uh, players alike would be would be happy to would be happy about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think there are times when it's easy to pile on Valverde, but I don't think. At least this is a stance on the podcast, and you'll see this all over our, you know, our social media. That, you know, I'm not going to take the stance just yet that it's time for Valverde to leave, and that his story at Barcelona is fully written. I think there's still, again, it's November, and it's not time to to give him on that. But one of the things that always seems to set people off is Victor Victor's question with Rakitic getting that red card and being such a critical piece of Valverde's system. Was that the only way, being the red card or even an injury? Is that the only way that Valverde is going to sit him? And I, I think it doesn't bring up necessarily Valverde's what seems to be an infatuation with, with Rakitic. Because, again, my worry with Rakitic has always been that when I've seen him playing poorly, to me, he looks more tired than, than, than just bad. And that's the same thing I think that I, I don't want to give these players being Rakitic and Arthur's the other one because Arthur, as you, can't, you cannot forget that Arthur played the Brazilian season. He did have an injury that kept him on the shelf for a while in his last season in Brazil. So he did have a little bit of time to rest, but he really truly has gone from trying to rush himself back to fitness in Brazil to coming to the Camp No over the summer, not doing much training at all, but then jumping into the first team. He was slowly brought in by Valverde, so he got a little bit of rest there, but still to jump all the way from the Brazilian league to the Liga, basically in your same calendar year, is a tough thing on his body more so than it is on what clearly seems to be a mind that is prepared to play in the Liga, just that his body, again, might not be holding up throughout the course of a season. So hopefully... Arthur, as Valverde has continued to do, rotates him, even if he gets the starts, rotates him, takes him out. And we've seen that Arturo Vidal for Arthur has been the go-to substitute in the last few weeks. That said, for Rakitic, that is not the case. You know he certainly, even with a yellow card, would have played. And that is the puzzling thing. I think that's the one frustration I had, that where Rakitic, I mean, particularly when he is tired and when he, when he has had his fill of a game, his challenges get a little more rash. And I think already on a yellow a manager, or I think most managers would have taken him out dealing with that caution. And the problem I have with it too is, as Guatham asks, does Alverde think he's playing FIFA, which is a little joke there about the starting 11. Mm -hmm. He also questions with Elena coming out there, what does he have to prove putting Elena out? And James had even mentioned that maybe it was just that Valverde could say that he gave a Lamazia product a run out. But for me, that's the thing. I, I think I see Elenia having watched him with the B team, and yes, it is a step up from the third division, but Elenia is ready for the first team for a reason. I think everybody in that coaching staff believes that, and he is an offensive-minded midfielder. He's a, he was a goal scorer with Barcelona B. He knows how to hit the back of the net. So I think to trust him as a first-team player, it's not necessarily a young player, but to trust him as a first-team player coming in as an offensive-minded midfielder against Real Batiste when the game was calling for it, I don't hate that substitution because it's a substitution that makes sense if you're willing to credit Elenia as the player that he is and see him as a first-team quality player. And, and for Rakitic, I think that's the reason he should have come out because he was already on a caution, because he's played so much. And it's not a matter that, that I want Rakitic on the bench because he's bad. I want him to get a rest. And clearly, Rakitic, Arthur, Busquets, that is our first team, or not even first team, but first choice midfield. That's going to be the thing that Valverde should, in fact, go with. They're the three best midfielders together. Correct, but don't you think that for this game only, rather than sub out Busquets to bring in Lenya and uh, pull Rakitic back to the number six role, um, 
don't you think that it would have been more cautious to sub Rakitic out, who's like you, like you have just explained, already tired from all these games that he's played last season, plus the World Cup, plus this season, and he doesn't seem to miss one. It would have probably been better, in my opinion, to sub out Rakitic and bring in uh, Elenia in his stead, uh, or even Vidal in his stead, and keep Arthur on. Because, sure, Arthur uh, came in from the Brazilian season, but Arthur wasn't capped this summer by Brazil. And Arthur is only 21 years old. Rakitic is 31 years old, and he piled up <laughs> he piled up so many games. Uh, I think it was 80, 80, 81 games last season, including the World Cup. So, but at the same time, Alenia, like you said, should have been a first team uh, player this season if it wasn't for that unfortunate injury that he's uh, that he suffered uh, towards the end of the previous Barca B season, a game that was meaningless because Barca B was already relegated, by the way. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I agree with you. Again, it's splitting hairs on that, but I, I guess I, I did make my point clear that I do think that Rakitic, having had that yellow, should have come out even before Arthur. So I think that's mm-hmm. what the substitutes would have been. And I know Busquets came off, and Busquets, as we saw the stats, they, they showed him that he had just above 60% passing, which is extremely uncharacteristic of Busquets. He didn't have his best, and maybe for there was a reason maybe he wanted to come off in that situation. Um, and then that means that your midfield has to go six deep, and obviously the other potential midfielder, being Coutinho, is out due to injury. Now the people, pe- the person people will mention is, well, then we also have Rafinha and Denise Suarez. So the thing that we talked about in the preseason, that we had these riches of midfielders, then how can they not be trusted in these situations? And I know both Denise Suarez in the Copa del Rey game and then Rafinha, uh, while Messi was injured, they were playing out on the wings, but they're also central midfielders. So I think that that is a game that was calling for maybe not even Denise Suarez because, again, he's still not in form. He still seems to be just on the super far fringes of the bench, but yet he still suits up. He's still on the bench and could come in as a sub. So why have guys just sitting on the bench? I can see having Chumi on the bench and not playing him because he's there just in case of emergency, you know, break glass. But Denise Suarez isn't there just in case of emergency. He's a, you know, a guy in his mid-20s who plays for the first team. So for games that are calling out for guys like that, that comes it to it too, that if he winds up not being sold over the January transfer window, you kind of ask, why is that happening? I mean, why is he, why is he, why is he still in the squad yet? He'll just occupy a space on the bench. And I mean, you might as well just put again, a, a player on a, a younger player, put a Juvenil player who has already played on a Friday and put him on the bench on Sunday. If you just are occupying a spot where you have a guy just training and suited up and sitting there taking in a match in, in, in the best spot, they can't know. Correct. Correct. And uh, Denise Suarez, since you're mentioning him, uh, even though he hasn't featured a lot this season, we know enough about him to know that he has that spark about him offensively. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, I, I, he wouldn't be my first choice as a box-to-box midfielder, obviously. But when you have a situation like the one from last Sunday, when you needed to get, you needed to get back, uh, to, to get the game back, and you needed something to happen quickly, Denis Suarez is known to be able to do that. And he would have been a good option for sure. Yeah, and one of the guys who could have been an option in that game. And somehow, Mike, we've got this far in the show without talking about him. But, well, he wasn't on the field. So that's why we hadn't brought him up yet. But Rick asked (laughs) what to do with Dembele. 
He seemed to show maturity in the recent Classico, and yet now he's acting like a delinquent. Is a valuable asset for the club. What's the best way for the club to make him more mature and professional? And we've got a few more questions. Now, hold on one second. Carlos actually put in there as well that Deschamps came out, the French coach, that he says, I know his excuses when Dembele arrives late. His defense will say I'm not the only one. And that apparently with a French team as well, he's made a habit of getting in late. And now Christopher adds the final Dembele wrinkle that we we'll are get into. In American football, coaches often go to extraordinary lengths to essentially restrict their rookies. For instance, if a quarterback is capable physically of making all the throws, the coach will limit the playbook to the most simple ones until the player has gotten a full grasp of the fundamentals. The player is hampered initially, but in the long run, they have a better grasp of the game. And little by little, they are asked to do more. Is there a way to do this with Dembele? I realize there are two very two different sports, but I wish there was a way to limit some of the things Dembele does on the field when trying to do too much and losing the ball until he has a firm mental grasp of the Barca way. It would limit the damage to the team and he'll help him in the long run. And so this is where I think, Mike, I've of two minds. That I've mentioned on last week's show that Dembele is still only a few months older than Carlos Alenia, who, again, we're trying to protect in this La Masia bubble and say that, uh, you know, we got to get him in slowly. Because it's true, though, he has not played at a first division level. Where Dembele, this is now his third full season, if you will, at a first division level, one in France, obviously, and then one with Dortmund, and now one in Barcelona. Or, sorry, excuse me, two in Barcelona now, but last year, mm-hmm. I guess we'll call that a half a year with how many injuries he had. So again, now, yeah. in total, just about three and a half full seasons of first-team football. So in theory, that kind of play, that's how you're judging him, not even by the money, but you're judging his career by his first-team experience. So Dembele, in truth, should be farther along. But again, I remind you, he's still only... 21 years old and it, the maturity off the field is different again that's why I want to answer these two questions almost separately that on the field I can say as Christopher says if and if Dembele doesn't like it if he continues to play the way he's playing just like Malcolm it, uh, two games ago you put them on as a sub you put Dembele on a sub when that's the time in the game when you do run at opponents and you do take chances so maybe Dembele's starts are limited until he can figure the rest of the things out in, in training and if it and that's the thing, though, it, as an asset, that's the other part, that if he's, his behavior is, is disorienting and not good for the club and not good for the player, and you're not going to play him, so his, the, the price you could resell him at goes way down, he no longer becomes a valuable asset. So you almost have to play him, but I, not to almost contradict myself, but if Dembele is just going to play and lose the ball, then do other teams even want him either? Yes, they want him because of his extraordinary potential, but that's just going to make him worth less and less if he's playing super poorly for Barcelona. But that's the thing. I'm, I'm going to do what you just did and address both uh, sides of it separately. First of all, very quickly about his attitude. Uh, we only know what's being said in the media, and we we don't know how much of that is true and how much of that is pure speculation. But if we consider that Deschamps' uh, declaration can be extrapolated to the way he's behaving at Barcelona, he needs to get his act together very soon. Very, very soon. Because it doesn't matter how good he is. It doesn't matter how talented he is. I hate making comparisons, but going back to Ronaldinho, Ronaldinho was the best player in the world in his day. And he had very well-documented off-the-field issues. And that led to his uh, to his departure from Barcelona. And I'm pretty sure that if he didn't have those off-the-field issues, he could have stayed maybe two, three, or even more years 
in Barcelona. And who knows what type of career he would have had if he had stayed longer. <laughs> Not that he didn't do enough for the club or, or anything like that. Yeah, Mike, I, I love that point because I, I think back to... Uh, yeah, I'll let, and I'll let you answer the second part of this in a, a second. But mm-hmm. I think back to uh, with when it comes to Dembele and Ronaldinho and comparing them, I like that because for Dembele, you, you, it depends on what you read, obviously, in Marca or AS. And you, you read those stories and you say that even if he has a bad attitude, even if he's late sometimes and there are things that just aren't working about his character and his behavior... He's not this villain that he's being painted out to be in the media. And so they're extrapolating and creating and fabricating even more so to uh, and kind of ruining the reputation of the player. And the funny thing about Ronaldinho, and now you're talking, you know, more than 10 years ago, and you could go back to the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, so many times with those guys who have those partying reputations that Ronaldinho did, a lot of the times their legend, what we know as the public, isn't even the tip of the iceberg to how... We'll say to the level to which these millionaires have their legend created off the field. And so Ronaldinho, it's not even about the things that we knew about what he was doing in terms of, you know, the partying and and the clubbing and all that. But it's what we the stories that we don't know and that we may hear decades down the road about the legend of Ronaldinho. And that's, I think, the big distinction here is that Dembele is being created into more of this villain than he might be when guys in the past, like a Ronaldinho, were probably doing things even crazier and that you'd, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd gasp at if we knew now. Exactly. And Ronaldinho wasn't followed around with camera phones back in the day. <laughs> exactly. Social media has such a big role in this too. Absolutely. And as far as uh, the footballing aspect of it, I think that Dembele, we haven't even seen a portion of his potential yet, but we've seen glimpses of it. And he could be extremely decisive and extremely, uh, he, he could be of, uh, of an extreme service for the team whenever he's being used. And we saw Dembele offer us three points, game in and game out, especially in the first few games of the season, all the way up until uh, Clément Langlais got his red card and he was subbed out. And I think that was the turning point for his season. But I I am convinced that if Dembele can align three, four, five straight games, he'll get back to that level and then some. Yeah, and that's the whole thing about being patient with a young player that for as much first-team experience as he has, I think there's still ways that he can grow. And that kind of does take us into Charlie Barca's question. If Sergi Roberto hadn't got injured, Nelson Semedo would never have got the run of games he did. And that's where it looked like to us on the outside that he has improved. And it's still going to take some time for him to become an offensive right back. But it, with the Rap Real Batiste game, maybe the mistake was starting Messi, who, who didn't look like he was ready to defend and in fitness. And so that means that Sergio Roberto, who didn't have a good game otherwise, Sergio Roberto was also overrun on that side. And yes, Junior Furpo is not a world-beating left back at this moment. He might be someday, but Junior Furpo has only really been on anybody's radar for about the last year. And if he didn't play for Real Betis, you wonder, again, situationally, what how high of a, of a ceiling he has. But he's a guy that could be breaking into the Spanish national team and all these things. But again, he's not this world-beating guy that should have turned Sergio Roberto into the player he was. I think, again, Sergio Roberto was overrun by just the sheer amount of bodies. And Messi just wasn't, as I said, ready to help defend in the way that Rafinha was in his stay. But that said, why is Valverde leaving him out is Charlie's question. And it does go back to the fact that Sergio Roberto, just because he has a, a bad game in that 
for one match doesn't mean that he wasn't the right choice for that starting 11. It means that he had a bad game. And for me, Real Batiz, I can almost talk myself into saying that you know, Busquets, Rakitic, Arthur, and Roberto, those four in particular, had one of their worst games. Each individually had one of their worst games in quite some time. And then Piquet, Langley, and actually Ter Stegen, mind you, I don't think he's had that bad of a game in about a year and a half. That's how good Ter Stegen has been. As I mentioned, he's been a top two, three goalkeeper for the last calendar year, last year. And he also is dealing with that shoulder injury as well. That's why he wasn't called to the German national team. So Ter Stegen, for all of his issues, also had his one of the worst performances that he's had. Messi comes back from injury. And I don't want to make excuses for the team. Again, this is Barcelona. They have to show up. But that said, that Valverde looking at that pick Sergio Roberto because of how consistent and because of how good he is. And against Real Batiste, maybe it was a wrong choice. And I think that's Charlie's question, that why leave him out against Real Batiste? I agree with Charlie. I'm not sure. I think Nelson Semedo was the better choice there, but it doesn't mean that he's the first choice or he's the better choice. I think they're such different right backs that there are games calling for Sergio Roberto. I mean, Real Madrid, El Clasico, that game was calling for Sergio Roberto. He was one of the best players on the field against Real Madrid, and he always seems to be. He just matches up well with them perfectly. And there are games that Nelson Semedo was probably the better choice. And I think against Batiste, as we now know, obviously, in hindsight, but maybe even with some forward thinking, I think Semedo might have been the better choice there. Yeah, absolutely agree. But you you know what, though? I don't think that Sergi Roberto's uh, performance was his only bad performance this season. We've seen... We've seen uh, here and there some struggles defensively with Sergi Roberto. He's had a he's had a more difficult time than than previous season def- than previous seasons. Pardon, defensively, but he contributes so much offensively. Uh, a good reference would be the games like the game against Rayo Vallecano. That wonderful pass that he gave to Luis Suarez from the left foot. And that's what he has to offer. But defensively, I'm always kind of concerned when I see that Sergi Roberto starts against a team that is known to to attack full on and all out like Real Batiste does. And to me, and I agree with Charlie Barca, Nelson Semedo would have been a better choice for that game. Yeah, I do find it interesting, and Kevin Williams, who's been on the show, also writes for uh, some quality pieces for The Athletic as well. Um, Kevin Williams always is mentioning that, and you look at the money that Pep Guardiola has spent in the last two, three years on fullbacks, that the way the modern game is working, you have to have some of the... If you have better fullbacks, sometimes that in today's game can be just as important as having the better center backs. Sometimes the fullbacks affect the games on both sides of the field. And when Jordi Alba's on his game, which we've seen... Uh, many times in the last few weeks where he's really in sparkling form that when Jordi Alba is on his game and terrorizing a left side and he's working well with whoever may be in front of him on that left wing and he has that space to run in Barcelona have a gigantic advantage in that game and as Kevin does say with the the fullbacks being important can you think Mike back to a time when Barcelona really have had such this almost 50-50 narrative of having a position where you have an offensive option and a defensive option. And not to say that Sergio Roberto can't defend or that Nelson Semedo can't be a part of the attack. He has delivered a few good crosses in and has he does have the speed to burn as well on that right wing. But that said, has Barcelona had that kind of dichotomy between two players at the same position? In, in I can't remember the last time that I can think of. No, me neither. You're absolutely right about that. But I would 
I would trade in a Sergio Roberto and a Nelson Semedo for a right back who can actually be efficient on both sides of the ball, game in and game out. And ever since Dani Alves has left, it's really something that has been lacking in Barcelona. And it has shown uh, at times more than others, but it, it has really been uh, a problem for us since uh, the departure of Dani. Yeah, I think it's going to transition to us in our final question of Lavanda in today's show. But you do mention, and I, I'll go back to the beginning, how I say how Barcelona fans are spoiled. Well, I mean, Danny Alves at right back was the best player for Sevilla when he played there. And I can't harp enough that Danny Alves is one of the best right backs to ever live and to ever play. And so he might have had a sharp decline in his last two years with Barcelona, and yet he still continued his professional career for a few more years now after this. But for, for Danny Alves, he, he had a way of spoiling Kules because of just how important he was to the game. And you could say that he was one of those players, and they seem to all be Brazilian outsides or wingbacks, but Danny Alves helped revolutionize the position. That's how important of a player he was. And the same thing's going to happen, obviously, in the future. Not Messi is an alien. I, I don't count him in this. But for Sergio Busquets, who... People will consider one of the best at his position ever, but they won't consider him one of the best players ever. And I think Danny Alves has the same narrative, that he's one of the best at his position ever, but you know he doesn't crack those all-time lists in the way that Busquets won't, in the way that Xavi and Iniesta will, obviously, with those two. But with Busquets, it's going to be the same thing. That there's so many things that Busquets does, and just the level of play he has at his own position, and Busquets helped revolutionize that position. That's how big Danny Alves was. And, and I don't know how many options there are in world football that are doing what we expect this right back to do. No, you're exactly right. And there was another great right back who was right up there with Danny Alves and he retired a few seasons ago and his name is Philippe Lam and he's never been replaced. And they have the same, they have the same issues over there as we do here in Barcelona. They, they have a midfielder filling up for him in the name of Joshua Kimmich. So it's going to be very difficult in the future to to find someone with that level of quality playing that position. Yeah, that's true. And we think to Barcelona, we're trying to hit the alarm here. Try being a Bayern Munich fan at the moment, especially after <laughs> losing to Borussia Dortmund. And I'm surprised we didn't get any Paco Alcatraz questions here. <laughs> uh, but I certainly they will if he continues to score in the way he is, again getting the winner against Bayern Munich. I mean, I'm happy for him. How exciting for him. We'll get into him uh, in future shows. I guarantee it. But Ranga asked, I have a feeling that the Kool-Aids are becoming very impatient these days. One bad result, and they want the manager's head. We have prioritized the Champions League more than the Liga this year, which is exactly what Kool-Aids wanted. What are your thoughts on that? And I think this kind of wraps up the show, puts it in a nice little Blagrana sandwich here. And it goes back to, again, not having, trying to see that, one negative result does not derail a whole season, but the whole point of the fear and frustration of Kool-Aid at the moment is that Barcelona don't seem to be playing, particularly in the midfield. That's the place that in the middle of that field is where Barcelona has been at its best over the last 30 years. And if Barcelona are not controlling in the midfield, if they don't feel like they have the upper hand in the game and they're just absorbing pressure and they're getting outpassed. And again, when you get outpassed, even though the game isn't all about possession, when you're getting out past crisp passes and the other team is just more forward, more direct, and seem to have more ideas, that makes you feel less less. I mean, that makes you that makes you feel inferior. And I think that's what Kool-Aids are not used to feeling inferior. And I think that's what even with prioritizing the Champions League, 
if Barcelona are playing as the inferior opponent and trying to beat their team, beat other opponents that way, it's just not going to work. But I also would hesitate to say that they've lost their way because, again, we're less than two and a half weeks from having defeated Real Madrid 5-1 in El Clasico. And they're not just some secondary side. They're a team that, while they had lost their way more so than Barcelona had this season, again, they're still one of the top five teams in the world that come spring, they're going to be gearing up for a fourth straight Champions League trophy. And Barcelona are going to have to raise their level to get there. So again, there's not some simple Barcelona fans are overreacting or we should just all calm down and relax. I think it is certainly somewhere in the middle. And Mike, I hope you're more definitive. I love towing the line. It's my favorite thing to do. That's why I host this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And since you're uh, talking about the importance of our midfield and, and football vision, I would like, if you don't mind, to uh, talk about this lovely gesture that Sergio Busquets have done in favor of uh, Kike Setien. So he autographed his uh, match-worn jersey with the following note. To Kike, with consideration and admiration for your vision of football. Signed, Sergio Busquets. And that, I think that tells you all you need to know. That when, even though he's still a player, even though he's just over 30, when Sergio Busquets is humbled in that way, it does say a lot. And I think, again, that's another reason why we're cool A's. The class of our players. So and not to kind of flip it on its head, but it's a compliment to Kike Setien, but it's also a compliment to the class, I think, of Busquets that he's always just continued to show that class. Exactly, definitely. <laughs> well, Mike, as we wrap this one up, again, that was a full show of La Ronda. We still went the time we usually go in these shows. And while it did feel negative, I think there's still a lot of hope. There's a lot of decisions to be made. And Ernesto Valverde is still the manager. He's got an international break to figure everything out. And you have to think that, well, if Dembele starts setting his alarms a little better, then maybe we can turn his season around and Again, a lot of guys had their worst game of the season all at the same time. And so I'm going to continue to be positive here. But again, there is a warning that Barcelona have to get back to playing the way that they know how to play. And as we've said, if Anastasio Valverde this season winds up not being that guy, I know he did sign that extension or is looking to sign that extension with the board. But if he's not the guy to do that, then yeah, maybe it's time to bring in another manager, whether it's Kike Setien or whoever it may be that plays the way that Kool-Aid's want them to play, but Barcelona are who they are for a reason. I mean, part of their brand is playing the way they play. And, you know, I do want to let you, Mike, real quick before we wrap this one up, give you a chance to talk about your personal brand. Of course, we've had you on the, this show before, and you have your own show as well, of course. So I'll, I'll just give you a little platform now. Excellent. Thank you very much. So my show is called uh, The Blaugrana Podcast. It is in French. So for you, out, uh, for you Kool-Aid's out there who speak and or understand French, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at Blaugrana Pod, and we're we're available on a vast array of, applic- uh, of applications, SoundCloud, Spreaker, as well as iTunes. And uh, we come up with a we come up with a brand new podcast every single week. So again, I urge you, as I always do, while you're doing the busy work here in our show notes, where you can tap in your app again. Thanks for listening. 
When you subscribe to our show, again, check out Mike's stuff as well. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter at the Barcelona Pod or at Hilton D13, and on Instagram at the Barcelona Pod. Our closed Facebook group where all these questions came for. Again, I cannot urge everybody enough that I do do a lot of declines because people don't answer the three questions. Just answer those three questions, be in the group. We have a great, great community in there. And again, people are reacting as the games are happening. It's, it's a wonderful place for Barcelona fans. Deeper dives, discussions, all that. You can also help us out on Patreon to continue making these shows, tvpod.link backslash Patreon. And I promise as we're going to be showing in the next few weeks and months as well that these dollars Every dollar goes to helping keep this show running. We'll let you in on a few things behind the scenes. Again, that's all coming up. We'll keep plugging them. So keep tuning in. Keep listening to Mike. I'll say merci beaucoup to you. Thanks so much to you as well, the listeners, for listening to the Barcelona podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. And Forza Barca. Forza. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.